Good morning. As you can see on the screen, our sermon this morning is entitled From Friday to Sunday. Late on a Thursday evening, 2,000 years ago, Jesus and his apostles were in a small garden, Gethsemane, on the outskirts of Jerusalem. He's been betrayed by one of his friends, and he is captured. He's led to the home of the high priest, and he's questioned and then accused of blasphemy. And then at daybreak, the Jewish leaders gather the entire Sanhedrin together. They want to make this sham of an arrest and a trial look official, so they gather all of the the Jewish high council together. Jesus continues to undergo questioning and a mockery of a trial, and he is illegally condemned to die. Jesus is then led to Pilate, the Roman governor over Judea. The Jews bring Jesus to Pilate and they demand that he execute Jesus. Pilate hears this and he tries several things to get out of the situation. He tells them that he can't find anything worthy of of death that this man has done. He, He sends the mob off to Herod. He even tries to bargain with them tries to offer them a prisoner release, and he, he offers to release them Barabbas or Jesus. But they choose Barabbas. Pilate tries one more thing. He goes out to the Jews and he says, Look, I, I don't find anything worthy of death in this man. I'll give him a good beating, and, and then I'll release him. So they take Jesus... The soldiers strip him of his clothes and they tie him to a post and they beat him. They know that Jesus had been called King of the Jews, so they make a crown of thorns and smash it down on his head and put a scarlet robe on him. Jesus is led back to Pilate and he's taken in front of the people. And Pilate says, look, I've beaten him. I punished him for you, but I don't find anything worthy of death in this man. I will release him. But the people begin to chant, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate repeats, why? What what has this man done? I, I find no fault in him. And I'll release him. And they chant louder, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? And they scream out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate realizes that there's nothing that he can do. He gives in to the crowd and hands Jesus over to be crucified. Pilate washes his hands and he says that the blood of this innocent man is not on me. And the Jews scream back, let his blood be on us and on our children. And Jesus is led to die. He begins walking the road to Calvary through the streets of Jerusalem. He is mocked and he is ridiculed and he is beaten along the way. He's forced to carry 
his own cross. He eventually collapses under the weight of it. And Simon, a pilgrim from Cyrene, is forced to help carry it the rest of the way. Once they arrive at Golgotha at about 9 a.m., Jesus is laid on the ground. His arms are stretched out and nails are driven through his hands and and into the cross. The horizontal beam of the cross is then attached to to the vertical beam and then it's lifted into the air. His feet are nailed to the cross and Jesus is suspended between heaven and earth to die. Jesus hangs on the cross for nearly three more hours. He is beaten and he's broken, he's mocked and he's ridiculed. He is forced to endure the horror and the shame of the cross. And now he knows he has come to the end. He knows that his work is complete, he has fulfilled his mission, and he is now ready to face one last foe, death. And he gives his spirit to God and he dies. One of the soldiers comes to break the legs of the men that were being crucified, but by this time Jesus is already dead. The soldiers pierce Jesus' side and blood and water flow. Jesus has died. His body is placed in a new tomb by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, and the stone is rolled in front of the grave. As Friday turns to Saturday and then Saturday turns to Sunday, some of the women who were followers of Jesus decide that they're going to make a trip to the tomb where the body had been laid. They want to pay their respects and, and prepare the body with, with oil and, and fragrances. So Mary Magdalene the mother of, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and a few other women make their way towards the garden. But as they approach the tomb, they see something unusual. They don't see guards standing around the tomb. Instead, they see the stone had been rolled away. They look inside the tomb, but there is no body there. Jesus is gone. Mary Magdalene apparently freaks out a little bit, and she takes off back towards home. She loved Jesus. He had healed her. He had changed her life. And this man that she had followed and dedicated her life to had just been murdered. He had been humiliated. And now she thinks that someone has stolen the body. So she runs back to tell Peter and John the horrible news. The rest of the women stay there. And then suddenly they see two men sitting inside the tomb. These two men's clothes shined like lightning. One was sitting where the head of Jesus was laid. The other was where his feet would have been. There was no body there, only angels. Instead of the darkness of death, they see the shining lights sent from heaven. Still, though, they don't understand. They kneel down before these angels, and the the angels, they know why they are here. They tell the women that Jesus is, is no longer here. He's no longer dead. He is risen. And that they need to go and tell others that Jesus is risen from the dead. 
While all of this is going on, Mary Magdalene is racing back to town to tell Peter and John that, that Jesus can't be found. She finally reaches their homes and she shares this awful news. Jesus is gone and no one knows where he's at. As soon as Peter and John here, they bolt out the door and they head back towards the tomb. John was apparently, I think, a little younger than, than, and faster than Peter, so he reaches the tomb first. He kneels down and he looks inside, but he doesn't go into the tomb. He looks in and he sees what Mary had been talking about. There is no body. There's no Jesus in that tomb. And at first sight, it appears that Mary Magdalene was right. Who could have took the body? But then Peter gets there and he looks into the tomb. He doesn't know what to make of it either. The body is gone and he doesn't know where Jesus is at. But then John, he takes another look. He sees the strips of linen lying there. He sees the burial cloth that had been around the the head of Jesus folded up by itself and it dawns on him. If someone stole the body, why would they take time to remove the linens from a decaying body? Why would they take time to neatly fold up this linen napkin? This wasn't the scene of a grave robbery. This was the scene of a resurrection. The scene of a man that was in control. And John realized what had happened. So Peter and John head back home. Shortly after they leave, Mary Magdalene arrives back at the tomb. She's a little slower getting there uh, than Peter and John. But as she gets back to the tomb, all she can do is kneel down and cry. But then she looks into the, into the tomb. She sees those two angels that had spoken to her, spoken to the other women. And they, and they ask her, why are you crying? And she tells them someone has stolen the body of Jesus, and I don't know where he's at. But then Mary turns around and she sees another man approaching. She thinks that he's a gardener, but this is no gardener. Maybe it was the tears in her eyes, but but she didn't know who this man was. And the man asks her, why are you, why are you crying? What are you, who, who is it that you're looking for? And Mary tells him that that she's looking for Jesus, and if if he will just tell her where he is at, she will go and she'll take care of it. But then the man says, Mary. And maybe it was the tone of his voice. Maybe it was the way that that name sounded from those lips. Maybe it was just because Jesus decided to reveal himself. For whatever reason, this was no gardener. This was the resurrected Savior. This was Jesus Christ. He is risen. The tomb was empty. Not because someone stole the body, but because He is risen. The tomb was empty, and the tomb is still empty today. No one could deny that the tomb of Jesus was empty. Not the Romans, not the Jews, not the followers of Jesus, the tomb was empty. And the tomb of Jesus is still empty today. Brooke Foss Westcott once said, there's no historic incident better or more variously supported than the resurrection of Christ. Friend and foe cannot deny 
that the tomb of Jesus is empty. And when you hear that story, when you hear the story of the cross, and you hear the story of the empty tomb, when you look into the empty tomb, when you look at the cross, what do you see? The first thing that I see when I think of that story is that I see the lengths that God's justice and wrath go to punish sin. To properly begin to appreciate what occurred at the cross, we need to try to understand a few things about what sin is and how God views sin. In 1 John, the third chapter, in the fourth verse, it says, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law for sin is the transgression of the law. John tells us that sin is the transgression of the law, that what we are practicing when we do this, when we are practicing sin in our lives, is that we are breaking the law. But whose law are we breaking? Maybe we're, maybe we're violating our own personal code of conduct. We're violating our conscience. Maybe that's what he's talking about. Or maybe... He's talking about violating the rules of our family or, or, or society or, or things like that. Or maybe he's talking about the laws of the, the city or the country that we live in. The issue, though, is that John is not talking about any of those things when he is talking about what sin is transgressing here. He is talking about violating the law of God. Sin is the violation of the moral and spiritual law set forth by God himself. When we sin, it is a violation and a rebellion against the authority of God himself. Unfortunately, we view, we view sin sometimes like I think that we view the speed limit. Every day, you know, I, I drive somewhere. I drive either to work or I drive into to, to, to this building or I drive to, to run chores or, or errands or things like that. And I see that speed limit sign, and the speed limit sign out there on, on the highway says 65 or 70 miles per hour, right? But you know what? I, I get in my truck, and, and I might press down on the accelerator and, and set my cruise control for 70. I, I see the speed limit sign, but what does it hurt? I may go over a little, but, you know, I, I need to get places. I need to go somewhere and get there a little bit quicker. I want to get to where I'm going. I'm not concerned too much about what the law says or what I should be doing. It doesn't really matter if I drive a little bit faster. Who's it going to hurt, right? What's it going to, what's it going to bother? I take that, unfortunately, and I'm not saying this is right. I take that sometimes a little bit more like a guideline than a law. Don't get me wrong. I, I take the important law, quote-unquote important law, seriously. I, I don't murder. I don't deal drugs. I follow the big laws, okay? I, by and large, am a law-abiding citizen. But actually, I break the law every day. And when I break one law, when I break the law that says I can only go 65 miles per hour, I can no longer say with a straight face that I perfectly keep the law, that I am a law-abiding citizen. And we view sin and the transgression of God's law the same way. In our minds, there are quote-unquote guidelines and there are quote-unquote big sins. And we're church-going people. So we, we are, we're the good people. And we don't commit those big sins. We don't murder. 
Well, except when we have anger in our heart and we commit spiritual murder in our heart. But we don't commit adultery. We don't commit fornication. Well, except when we look at other women or other men on the internet or on TV or while we're at school or at work and we have lustful thoughts and we commit spiritual adultery in our heart. But we love, though, right, Jeff? We love. We love our families and we love each other here at the church. Well, except when we let pride and and our jealousy and, and other things cause division in our families. And what about those people that might not love us? Do we really have to love them? Do we love our enemies? Or when it's time to turn the other cheek or make peace with those around us, do we lash out and we tear them down? And that's not to mention all the other things that God has to say about lying and gossip and pride. And when we commit one single sin, and it is a violation of God's law. There is no difference between... There is a big difference, though, between the laws of the land and God's law. The big difference, when I speed, I'm not terribly concerned about it, okay? Because chances are I won't get caught, and even if I do, what's the worst could happen? I might have to take defensive driving, I might have to pay a small fine. It's inconvenient, but it's not a huge deal. If I murder someone, though, it's a big deal. It's a much bigger deal, and the punishment that I would receive is much larger for murderers. Justice in our, in our judicial system, justice and the penalty of the, the, the transgression that we, we commit depends on the severity of the crime. With sin, though, in God's law, in violation of God's law, God's justice requires the same penalty for all sin, whether big or small in our minds, from the little white lie to sexual immorality to murder, God's justice requires the same penalty. The wages of sin is death, Paul says in Romans, the sixth chapter. Sin, whatever the sin may be, earns death. Our sin earns death. Beginning in the Garden of Eden, the result of sin is death. God's justice requires, and it demands, that I owe a death. For my sin. Not just a physical death, but a spiritual death. Romans, the first chapter in the 18th verse says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God and the justice of God requires that penalty for sin occurs. Jerry Bridges in the Gospel for Real Life says, This is not the mere petulance of an offended deity because his commands are not obeyed. It is rather the necessary response of God to uphold his moral authority in the universe. God's word says that sin must be punished. Sin always has consequences. Even those sins that no one else knows about, those skeletons that are way back in your closet that no one else knows about, those things that you think that no one has ever heard or seen or know about, 
those things that you push down that you think that no one has any clue about, those sins must be punished. And when we look to the cross, we see the links that God's justice and His wrath will go to punish sin. This righteous and just requirement of sin's punishment led God to not just punish me or punish you for your sin. But God's requirement to punish sin sent His only begotten Son to the cross. To lay His Son on the altar of the cross and bear the burden of sin. And I shudder to think about a circumstance where I would have to put one of my sons on the cross or in, the, in, on, in a situation where they would be treated like that, where they would be exposed to such horrible treatment and death. I love my sons, and I would do anything to keep that from happening, but God's justice required that my sin be punished. And his justice demands that someone bear the burden of my sin. His standards cannot be lowered. He requires and he demands holiness to be in his presence and not sin. And when I look to the cross, when we hear that story that we talked about this morning, we see the lengths that God's justice will go to punish the sin in my life. And when I think about my sin and the debt that I owe because of my sin, I begin to think about the horrible situation that I am in. But then I look back to Calvary and I realize the second thing that I see, and that is God's love and His mercy to forgive sin. God's justice demands payment for the debt of sin, but God's love and His mercy and His grace for His creation yearns to forgive those sins. And that love and that mercy and grace is so great that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish but have eternal life. As the old song says, See from his head, his hands, and his feet, Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, Or thorns compose so rich a crown? Early in the ministry of Jesus, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said in John the first chapter in the 29th verse, Look, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Notice that phrase that he uses, takes away the sins of the world. The the Lamb of God didn't make the sins vanish away. He didn't make the sins disappear. He took the sins. He bore them personally. 1 Peter, the second chapter, the 24th verse says, "...who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness." by whose stripes ye were healed. He bore our sins on the tree. Jesus loves you so much that He bore your sins on the cross. And oftentimes we look to the cross, we think about what Christ endured, and we get caught up 
in the physical pain and, and that, that he endured, we, we, we think about the, the beating and the crown of thorns and, and the nails being driven into him and all those sorts of things. And those were horrible things that he had to endure. But when Christ bore our sins, he experienced anguish and pain that was deeper than just physical pain. When he bore that sin, he experienced a separation from God. He cries out from the, car, from the cross, Why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken and he was abandoned. That's the punishment for a criminal. That's the punishment that I deserve because of my sin. Not Jesus. Not the King of kings. Not the creator of all things. Not the Son of God. But on the cross, when Jesus was bearing my sin, he felt abandoned, forsaken, and separated from God. Christ experienced this separation from God so that we would never have to. Romans, the fifth chapter, starting in the seventh verse, says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled we shall be saved by his life. Notice what Paul said, even when we were sinners, Christ died for us. We aren't or weren't a righteous man or some good man that some might dare to die for. We were sinners. And he says that even when God's wrath and justice demanded punishment for my sins, when I was an enemy of God, he still showed his love toward us. And we see this love when we turn our gaze to the cross. God loves you. Don't ever forget that. God loves you. And he loves you so much that he was willing to send his son to die on the cross, to endure the pain and the shame of the cross. That is the length that God will go to save you, to reconcile and to redeem you. He loves you so much that he sent the king of kings to die for a rebel like me. So on the one hand, we have God's justice demanding punishment for sin, and on the other hand, we have the love of God desperately wanting to show mercy and grace and forgiveness. On the one hand, the debt that my sin has incurred. On the other, a Savior who's willing to pay the debt that I cannot pay. And when we look to the cross, we see where the debt was paid. I see the transaction from where the where the transaction for my sin occurred. Just before he entered into Jerusalem for the last time, Jesus said in Matthew the twentieth chapter and the twenty eighth verse, even as the, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. A ransom. What is a ransom? What does that word mean? A ransom is a sum of money or payment made for the release of a prisoner. And we are prisoners 
slaves to our sin and the penalty demanded of it. We are slaves to the death, the physical and spiritual death that our sin occurs. But Christ came to pay that ransom to release us from the enslaving power of sin and Satan. As Jesus hangs from the cross, one of the last things he said was, it is finished. Translated into Aramaic, this would be tell teleo. It was a common phrase that you would hear in the marketplaces. Someone would buy something and you would hear the vendor say, tell teleo. It meant the deal was done. The transaction was complete. And as Christ hangs from the cross, he finishes his work. And this is the phrase that he uses to describe what had just occurred. The transaction for my sin was completed. 2 Corinthians, the 5th chapter, verse 27, 21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 1 Peter, the 3rd chapter, in the 18th verse says, For Christ also hath once suffered for us, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Only in the death of our Lord Jesus on behalf of sinners could God's justice be served and God's love conveyed. At the cross, Jesus paid the debt for my sin with the currency of his blood. As the prophet in Isaiah predicted, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was on him. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And we see this occur at the cross, where God's justice and God's mercy meet there on a lonely hill called Golgotha. And the transaction, the payment for our sin occurs. And once we shift our view, though, from the cross of Friday to Sunday morning, In the empty tomb, what do we see? John looked into the empty tomb and the scripture said that he believed. He saw the burial clothes. He saw the neatly folded napkin like we talked about. He saw the empty tomb and he saw the evidence and he believed. And that belief led to hope. But what is hope? That can be one of those words that we hear and we read it in the scriptures and we don't fully understand what it implies or what it means. I hope this year that Texas A&M wins the national championship in football. I hope that the stock market goes up 50% over the next couple of months. I hope that those things happen, but I don't really think either of them are going to happen. I don't think that A&M is ever going to win a national championship if it continues like it's been going. When I say that I have hope as a Christian, is it like that, that I'm wishing for something to happen? But I'm a little skeptical in my heart. 1 Peter, the first chapter, verse 13 says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Christ. And then skip down to verse 21. It says, Who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope 
might be in God. Peter says that we should have hope until the end, that our faith and hope might be in God. So what does that hope mean? Hope is not wishful thinking. Rather, it is a confident expectation of things to come. It's more than just wishing something would happen. It's having full confidence and faith that what we have been promised will come to pass. That these great and precious promises that we have been given will come true. And when we look into the empty tomb, we don't see the end of the story of Jesus. We see the hope of a resurrected Savior. 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter and the 23rd verse says, But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. Because the tomb is empty, and because of the promises that we have that we will follow in his steps, we can look into the empty tomb and find hope. We see the hope and the assurance that this world is not my home, that this life in this world is not where I belong, that it is not my ultimate destiny. Christ endured the pain and the shame and the horror of the cross, knowing that at the end of his work and life here awaited him eternal glory and a home in heaven. Despite his circumstances, despite his troubles and trials and the things that he endured, he had the confident expectation that he would return home to his Father in heaven. And we too have that same hope. So when we see how messed up this world can be sometimes, anchor yourselves to that hope, to the confident expectation that this world is not your home. When you receive bad news, when, you're, when your friends or your family abandon you, when you receive that medical diagnosis that burdens your heart, stand firm and know that whatever comes your way is only temporary. This world is not your home. There is something better waiting for you. Josh McDowell once said that no matter how devastating our struggles, disappointments, and troubles are, they are only temporary. No matter what happens to you, no matter the depth of tragedy or pain that you face, no matter how death stalks you and your loved ones, the resurrection promises you a future of immeasurable good. This echoes Paul's sentiments in 2 Corinthians, the second chapter and the ninth verse, when it says, But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. And this hope and the assurance that this world is not our home leads us to the hope, the confident expectation that death is not the end of our story. The story of Jesus of Nazareth didn't end when Joseph of Arimathea placed his body in the tomb. And one day when John and Luke and Angela are standing by my grave, it won't be the end of my story. My death will not be the end of life for me. It'll be the beginning of my eternal life in heaven. Mozart once said that death is the key that unlocks our true happiness. But how can that be? Death is scary. Death is unknown. We cry when we go to funerals because they seem so sad and they seem so final. But Jesus Christ faced the grave. 
and he faced death, and he overcame it. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that victory was completed when the tomb was empty. So now no longer must we live life in fear of death. Death is not the end. It's a transition. It's something that we will go through. Probably the best way that I can describe how I view death now is like when we fall asleep at night and wake up the next day. It's no longer, death is no longer a destination for us. It's something, like I said, that we will go through. But we have the confident expectation that our Heavenly Father will bring us home to the other side. And I look into the empty tomb of Jesus and I find that hope. Hope that someday we'll see our loved ones again. Hope that one day we'll be free of this life of sin and death. Hope that all tears will be wiped away. And hope that I will see Jesus. That I will see with my eyes the glorious vision that we find in Revelations, the fifth chapter. That we will see the Lamb of God seated by the throne of God. We'll see the innumerable company of angels around the throne and we'll join in that chorus and we will sing glory and blessing and honor be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb that sitteth that liveth forever and ever. And I will cast my crown down at his precious wounded feet and will be home for all eternity. And I have that hope because Jesus Christ died for my sins. But not just that he died, but that he rose again. He took my sins in his body and he took them to the grave, but the grave could not hold him. The tomb is empty. He is risen. And because of it, we have hope that one day we will join him. But in order to join him, we, went, we must follow in his steps. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also in the likeness of of his resurrection. Paul says that if we will follow that form of doctrine and our faith moves us to repent of our sins and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and be buried in baptism, we will follow in his steps and we will be resurrected to eternal life. Jesus told Martha just before he raised Lazarus from the dead, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live again. Do you want to have that hope today? Do you want to have that confident expectation that one day you will rise from the grave and meet Jesus around the throne of God? Jesus has paid the price for your sins. He died on the cross, he was buried, and on the third day he rose again. He is risen. And I pray that all of us be thankful and grateful for what was done 2,000 years ago and that we have that hope of a resurrected Savior in our lives.
And I pray that if you haven't followed that form of doctrine, haven't followed what it says in the Bible, what it says in the Word of God, I pray that you do that today. I pray that you submit to your Lord in baptism. Perhaps you've been struggling with the cares of this life and don't have the joy and the hope that God wants you to have, and you'd like the prayers of the church, we'd be happy to do that also with you and for you. If there's anything we can do for you, please come as we stand and as we sing.